your lunch, those amazing brownies. I'm just going to welcome you back. I'd like to let you know what our topic of discussion is for next Thursday, and that is, who are the beneficiaries of treaties between First Nations people and Canada? And our speaker will be Don McIntyre. So this looks like a very good discussion. I hope to see you next week. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, there is a suggestion box actually in the outside the doors here. If you have um, ideas for future presentations, feel free to fill that out and put that in there. Um, like I had mentioned prior, check uh, Twitter, check our even Facebook and our website to, to see this presentation, to share it with anyone who may have missed today. There's a lot of really great information that David shared with us, so it would be great to pass that along. Um, so now will be time for Mr. David Hill to answer your questions. I just want to reiterate that it is questions, not opinion. So if you can state your question and let Mr. Hill answer the question, that would be fantastic. Please keep it friendly. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to what you have to say. Start with you, Bev. Hi, I'm Bev Mendel-Atherstone. Thank you so much for coming and telling us what's happening. That's uh, fascinating stuff and wonderful that Alberta government gave five million matching so that it ended up being 10 million. That's fabulous. Um, at our table, we were discussing various things. And a question I have is uh, that you said <coughs> by 2050, um, the population naturally will increase, but most of the people will be, at least half the people will be um, middle class. I wonder where you got that statistic, and I wonder what middle class is defined as in that with most of the population um, centers of growth in countries that are quite poor. Can you give us some information on that? Thank you. Yeah, the, the statistic comes out of a research group out of Australia that is part of a group called Abaris. And uh, I think the fellow who actually wrote the report is uh, Jeremy Penn, uh, but I can get his actual reference for you. What they did is they took a look at the trajectory of economic growth in the developed world and in the developing world. And in particular, in the Asian country and the Asian bloc, they were taking a look at what economies will look like by 2050. The standard that they used to judge middle class was a developed world middle class standard. So <coughs> I, don't, I don't have the slide here, but I have one in China, for China, that shows uh, the growth in buying power and the creation of a middle class and a wealthy class in China over the last decade. And you'll find that they're growing at really phenomenal rates. That's the same in India. It's the same through much of the Asian countries. So the statistic that came out of the Abaris report really did take a look at, based on the forecast when they did the report in 2013, their view was that in addition to the population growth, those countries that are now we might still consider them developing world countries, are going to be developed world countries by 2050. And they'll have the same standard of living for many of them that we ourselves have. They will live in mega cities, and that will also drive some of these issues. I'm Klaus Jericho. Uh, Dave, thank you very much for the uh, 
very thought-provoking presentation um, and uh, the signal that Alberta is uh, going to think about uh, agriculture in the context of everything. I think it's high time that we do that. Um, and it's, uh, I found it fascinating that uh, the food concept is more or less related to energy concept and both of them are just huge issues for mm -hmm. our uh, civilization. Uh, but uh, specifically uh, and related to this is the attitude you brought was that we will continue to supply food globally for the, f for the world. And um, I asked myself, should Canada be obliged to do this? Why, why, do we, why do we do this? Why do we let other countries go their own food? Because if we give them food, they're not going to go their own. And maybe we should focus more on smaller agricultural operations. What, what are your thoughts on that? So <coughs> a really interesting question, Klaus. Um, and I'm going to have to go to something that Bobby said and flip it around a bit. That's a really good question. I'm going to give you my opinion. <laughs> so um, I, I think this whole piece around feeding the world and really understanding food and agricultural systems uh, really does take, it has a need for a very deep look. So if you look at the countries where the population is growing, the actual amount of land that exists in those countries for them to grow their own food is now less than a quarter hectare per person. They can't do it. They don't have the land and the resources to do it. In countries where they do have the land to some degree and maybe the resources, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where there's going to be huge population growth, <coughs> excuse me, there's a lot of improvements that can be made in helping those people develop self-sufficient food systems that are nutritious and meet their cultural needs. But just looking at the world overall, globally the demand is going to be there for the food. And Canada is one of only five countries that has the resources to produce it. The other piece that I find, excuse me, <coughs> find interesting in this is having been to some of those countries and seen how those people live, I also understand that they don't necessarily want what we want. Their culture is different. They want things different. The way they're organized is different. Um, and so my view is we are still going to be in a position where the world is going to need our resources to feed itself to some degree. And I guess my personal view is if that is the case, then why don't we want to be at the front end of that, doing it better than anybody else, and growing our own e economies at the same time? So the long opinion answer to your good question, Klaus. Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Thanks for coming, David. Um, my question relates to transportation a little bit. Uh, back in my potato growing days, I remember shipping potatoes to Manitoba and Manitoba potatoes were coming to Alberta. What the hell are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you knew the answer to that already. <laughs> but 
One specific question about transportation, which is a huge uh, issue. Uh, uh, the Dutch, as you mentioned, uh, are shipping massive amounts of fresh produce to China and other places in the world, flying it. Mm -hmm. Like, why the heck aren't they building greenhouses in China? Like, Jesus, why? <laughs> I. This this is a partial answer to your question, Knut. I I have a friend in California who works at the Pacific Institute, uh, Peter Glick, and one of the things Peter has studied the last number of years is the bottled water industry. And I, I will get to your question. Um, his language around the bottled water industry is that it is the best case in the world of marketing overcoming common sense. Yeah, and I have a bottle of water in my car. Um, now, why aren't these other countries doing it? In many cases, it can be a combination of things. China is building lots of greenhouses. They do have some resources. I think we live in a world that is so now interconnected and so dynamic that where there are areas where people excel at doing something, they're going to do more of it. The one thing I've always been impressed with the Dutch, and I have to confess at my table, I was heard there's two kinds of people, the Dutch and those who want to be. I won't mention her name at all. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, some societies have just been so good at developing trading mechanisms, at putting themselves at the front of the pack and doing it in an intentional way. I think we will see, you know, as, as much greenhouse development, horticultural development, and ag development as takes place in China, their population growth outstrips everything they can do. So they still need us. My question is, why don't we have more horticultural in Alberta? Because we're bringing in $17 billion a year of stuff that grows in greenhouses. We could get rid of the carbon for trucking it and grow it here. <laughs> Edward Thomas, <coughs> thank you for your presentation, Dave. Some of the concepts you have, I'd like to explore a little further. Maybe you have answers to that. <coughs> you have a tremendous challenge and since all the water has been allocated in the South Saskatchewan River Basin, and since you talk about sharing resources, are you asking us to take a shower once a week or to go to completely dry cleaning, to grow more food, to feed all these people? So uh, again, another, another really good question. Um, let, let me answer it in, in a couple of ways. One, I don't think I'm asking anybody to shower once a week. Two, even if you shower every day, um, I hope it's not a 20-minute shower. Um, when we moved to Lethbridge from Edmonton a little over three years ago, the first thing we did in our house is I changed out all of the appliances. And I can actually take a 20-minute shower and use 30 liters of water. That's about it. That said, I've managed to do things in my home that 
last month when I looked over the last year, my wife and I are consuming 114 liters per person per day year round. It's a third of the Canadian average. So you can drive some of this consumption down. When we take a look at our irrigation systems and water supplies, uh, we live in an area where the climate has always been highly variable. And superimposed on that are all the issues of climate change. And I think a growing understanding that as time moves forward, much of our precipitation, or some of our precipitation at least, will change from snow in the winter to rain. Um, it will occur at different times. It will occur earlier. Uh, those are going to present some huge engineering and policy challenges for us. But I think we actually have the resilience and the know-how to begin to adapt and to find new ways to adapt without hurting the economy, without making those of us who like to shower or bath more than once a week be able to do that. Um, I would, though, encourage anybody to do like me and stop wasting drinking water on your lawn. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. I have to say that your presentation was like music in my ears, uh, particularly the global setting that you put it in. Having retired and settled in Alberta after a 30-year career with the UN, mainly the World Food Program, um, I have to say that since I've been here, I've been perplexed that the elements that you very well described are all here, the need is over there, yet it's not happening. So I'm very pleased that your post has been established at the college and the university. Um, there is, a, you're part of the missing link that I've been looking for, I think. But there are other parts that are necessary to make things work too. And uh, I dare say you agree with that and have given thought to it. And I wonder if that is the case, you would elaborate on how do we then match things, put them together. The need is there, the potential is here. I have to say that we have, and I've been involved on the periphery, in delegations from China coming over right here to Lethbridge and vice versa, yet they're not well coordinated at all. They're piecemeal. There is no coordinated effort. So perhaps you could elaborate along those lines on what's needed. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Trevor. Uh, you really do raise an, an interesting issue in that um, <clears throat> while I've been able to set a little bit of a global setting, I actually spent a lot of time talking about what we can do at the college and the university to address that. Um, I actually did a presentation uh, three summers ago in Regina where I actually talked about what do we have to begin to bring together. Um, I don't know how many of you are in the same position I am. Over my career, I've probably, I don't think it's an exaggeration, I've probably attended eight big premier events that we're talking about the future of agriculture in Western Canada. Uh, great blue sky events, um, great ideas, um, lots of intellect, lots of enthusiasm, no follow-up, no implementation. Um, it's almost as if, as a society, in some of these big questions, we've allowed no one to be responsible. 
So I, I think at least in what the college and the university are doing is we've made commitments to each other, commitments to our funders and partners, that we're going to do what we can. That said, I think there, this is an interesting time where we need to bring together multiple levels of government, federal, provincial, and even local, along with commodity groups, producer groups, industry associations, and begin to talk about what is the pathway for us to achieve that vision of Alberta being this preferred jurisdiction for high quality, safe food and nutrition, and finding out what are the things that have to happen sequentially, and what are the things that can happen at the same time. And that kind of a roadmap, along with the investments necessary to achieve it, would be really, really interesting. And so maybe, Trevor, what I'll take back is uh, I'll think of pulling together a conference like that. My name is Henry Heinen, and because of my ethnic background, I do want to say something similar to what Annalise was saying, that it doesn't take much to be Dutch. <laughs> Because in life, you always have to keep things in perspective and in balance. My second observation is you've got listed there the Wageningen University. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, it's world-renowned, especially for the hydrology and the water management. And it's actually now the number one school in agriculture in all of Europe, three years running. Now, I also want to say about Wageningen, that's where the Canadian general and the German general signed the terms of surrender on May the 5th, 1945. So today is Liberation Day in Holland. And I was there in 2005 with the Canadian vets as a translator and tour guide. And uh, my dad took me as a young boy to Hotel the Wereld, which is the world. Mm -hmm. And on the side, they had all that in print and pictures. And I was just a young kid, maybe five. And uh, it was really impressive. And so Wageningen and always makes a lot of sense yeah. to me. Also, with the vets, we went to Alsmeer, just south of Amsterdam, where they have probably the largest flower markets with a cl Dutch clock mm -hmm. to sell them in the world. They have a railroad connection right to Alsmeer to Schiphol Airport. Yep. And things that are sold, say, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 10 in the morning, 12 hours later, they're in Calgary, Vancouver, and so yep. on. A lot of your cut flowers especially. I also was told in the brochure they will grow roses in Colombia, fly them to Alsmeer, sell them there, and then fly them all over the world. So it, it, I, I was really impressed that they were doing that. But my question is, how can they do it? You know, it's a small country. It fits in Alberta, what, 20, 21 times, mm -hmm. if you include the bodies of water. They have, say, right now 16 million people. As Canadians, what are we doing wrongly? So I, I, I'm not sure I know enough to say what Canadians are doing wrongly, but I think if I flip the question around, it's what have countries like the Dutch always done better than anybody else that we can emulate and that we can learn from? Um, I'll be back on campus at Wageningen on the 20th of June. Um, I have some colleagues I'm working with there. I enjoy every visit I go there because I come back with my head so full of ideas that we've just never tried. 
part of our solution might, or part of the answer might be that part of our culture is we want a made in Canada or a made in Alberta solution. And I think that takes too long. I think we need to find a way to jumpstart ourselves and think beyond that. So if there are great ideas anywhere in the world, we need to harvest them and bring them here and take a look at what we can do. Um, we're certainly not going to replicate everything that they can do in the Netherlands or other high-performing countries, but we can do a lot with what we, we already have, and maybe we should just do that to get started and then get the engine going. Van. My name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you very much, uh, David, for your presentation today. Brought a lot of information to me that I didn't have before. I uh, never realized that uh, a country like Holland could export twice as much food as, as Canada does. Really quite, quite uh, surprising and alarming to hear. Um, but I can't help uh, getting up here now and right after the last question, which I thought was an excellent one about what are we doing wrong here? I can't help commenting on that just before my question, that I think that we've become apathetic compared with the Dutch people and other Europeans that I, that I am very familiar with who have made entrepreneurism an important part of their lives, where they take charge uh, of, of things and are willing to put, put the effort into get, seeing them through. I think we've become apathetic that way here and uh, that we're not using good ideas that are out there. Um, I'm now to apply to my, to my question. Um, I'm delighted to see that, uh, that you people at the college and the university are putting together the, the business model along with agriculture, and that, uh, that will be turning out more people in that direction just as that applies to the, to the previous question. I think that'll be a, a very positive because uh, having grown up in Lethbridge, uh, born here and uh, lived here for 90 years, I can tell you that uh, Lethbridge is an agricultural center. And if there's any place that, uh, that needs uh, improvement, it, it, here, here we are right here at home. And the question that I would ask you is, do you feel that there's adequate uh, supply of information to the uh, local uh, university uh, 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 scene from all the international uh, agencies that could supply that information that can put together a, a strong entrepreneurial agricultural program. Thanks, Van. You know, the, the, the question of how much information we have access to to use in the programming and to expose students to <clears throat> is really interesting from an academic program design perspective. Uh, one of the things we've identified is that even where we have existing programs, for example, the university has programs in supply chain logistics. It's all about dry goods. It's all about big things that won't spoil in a week. Um, all we have to do is, we don't have to change the program, we don't have to change that, but we have to bring in and insert some of the issues around cold storage, some of the issues around cold transportation, fresh transportation. Um, how do you begin to do this? And so I think we're looking at, I know when I talked to the Dean of Management uh, a week ago, um, he's looking at two new 
full-time professorial hires that are both in the area of agribusiness, one in the supply chain management, another one in enterprise business risk management. So I think we'll get there over time. I agree with your comments about apathy, but Dave Hill's personal sense is it might be worse than that. We're so well taken care of and so well off, generally speaking, by countries around the world and so well treated and served that we probably don't feel the need. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, I, I think that we maybe need to grab a little bit more of that. And I'm actually quite positive about the future. Watching uh, students since I came to the university three years ago, um, watching students in even one year of this innovation and entrepreneurship programming, um, they're not willing to work 20 years to begin to make a difference. They want to make a difference now. So I'm very hopeful. I'm, I'm always optimistic, but I think we need more voices talking about what's possible than why we shouldn't do it. Okay, this will be our last question. My name is uh, Jim Moyer. Thank you for your presentation. You, you talked about the growth of the middle class, particularly in developing countries, but you also mentioned this includes a massive increase in energy. And same time, we're trying to control climate change. So where is this energy going to come from? And is this need for energy going to limit the type of growth you're talking about? So again, if, if I can answer a, a great question with an opinion, um, I think as much as our agricultural systems will have to transform, that same kind of transformation is going to be needed in energy. We're going to have to find ways to do things better. Um, some of that might come from traditional energy sources where we just get much better and more efficient. But I think, I don't know that I will live long enough, but I don't doubt that my children may live in a world where going to the gas station to fill up their car is not what they do twice a week. They may have another fuel source. I don't know what it is. I don't know that solar can do it. I don't know that wind can do it. I think nuclear could make a huge footprint in doing that from a carbon point of view. I don't know what people's acceptability will be over time. But I think there will be things happen, and even in agriculture, the ability to use biomass and close the loop in that energy system. I mean, those of you who may know Chris and Harold Perry, they have their biogas facility. Um, from an, not from a dollar perspective, but from an energy perspective, they're neutral. We don't have regulations that actually let them do that without losing bags of money. But the technology is there and it's possible. So I, I think as we go forward, we're gonna have to learn to do a lot better in food and agriculture. That's going to translate into energy as well. And uh, I look forward to the day when I can just go and spray a thin film uh, photovoltaic or some other solar system on my south facing windows and uh, be able to use that to supply much of my energy needs. So everybody, thanks very much for uh, inviting me. I had a, a pleasure being here. Uh, thanks again.